1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutille of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to have with us historian author Professor Anthony Pagden. Uh, professor Pagden is professor of political science at UCLA. He has been a fellow of Merton College, Oxford, and has written several acclaimed books, among which are Lords of All the Worlds, The World at War, and The Enlightenment, Why It Still Matters. And today we're discussing his newest book, the Pursuit of Europe, a History, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Professor, why did you write this book? Oh,
1: it's <laughs> a long story. Um, I, I suppose the real reason has to do with a gradual um, and increasing concern over the future of the European project, which of course was made more, more sharp by uh, Brexit, but I started writing this long before Brexit, in fact, two or three years before Brexit. And it's also a continuation of a long-term project which goes back to at least one of the books you mentioned, which is Worlds at War, not Worlds at War, sorry, um, uh, <clears throat> the um, Lords of All the World, which is one of the earlier accounts I did, which is a comparative history of the Spanish, British, and French empires in the 16th and 19th centuries. And it struck me that that what was happening here was part of a longer process of the unification, of the, or, the, or the bringing together, unification is too strong, but certainly the bringing together of a political project, or series of political projects, in which all major European nations of Europe, at one time or another, were involved. And that the empire was a key to that. In the last chapter of that book, I, what I considered was various projects which took place during the course of the latter, early part of the 19th century both in the United States and in Spanish America and in, and in Spain itself for a transformation of empire into federation. And that, that also, of course, is something the British took up again in the 19th century. And in a way, you can see the development of the EU, uh, the, the current European Union, as being not, I would stress, an attempt to, as some have claimed, to preserve the European imperial powers come what may by turning them into a kind of collective body. But certainly to transform that um, it, it sort of desire for empire, so to speak, into something more uh, benign, something more collective, and something more concerned with the continent of Europe itself, so it has an intellectual side to it, it also has a personal side to it because I spent what I live and do from France. I spent a lot of my time in Europe. Um, I'm married to a European and to an Italian, of course, I was myself European until last year and um, so it 's also a personal concern with what is happening to this continent to which I am which i have so much personally
0: invested despite the fact that i'm also an american citizen and i live in the united states as well has the concept of europe passed the test presently which is the war in ukraine ah that is a very good question um and i don't know whether
1: i think the the jury is still out i think so far it has done uh, much better than it did during the balkan crisis of the 90s and um we will we'll have to see what happens. I mean, it's obviously a, a very fine, the Union-Union finds itself in a very difficult position. One of the weaknesses of the Union, of course, as you know, is that the original plan, which goes back way to 1951, was to have an, uh, a sort of um, a military wing, Chris. And it doesn't have that. That was voted down by the French in the first instance and then it would have been voted down, I imagine, if it had come to the board uh, by almost any other nation in Europe. It's very difficult to put together a collective armed forces of of uh, nation states. Um, and so what it looks at, and certainly this is what happened, this is what happened some months back uh, Manuel um, Macron was calling for a revision of uh, this idea of a European defense force. So a greater sense of European independence of NATO, but also a greater role... Europe was in NATO so there's not really an answer to your question but I think that um, has Europe played the part it should have played I think it's done extremely well so far and it remains to be seen what it will do in the future it could have done a lot more whether by doing a lot more the results would have been for the Ukrainians better or worse
0: of course is another matter why do you say that Charlemagne's legacy is deeply problematic
1: well I think that the uh, the
0: (laughs) The, the
1: problematization is, goes back to what I said about this idea of a single unif- a unifying force within the within the nation. With the, sorry, within the union, uh, so that we have the idea of Charlemagne as an Holy Roman Emperor, an Emperor and the Holy Roman bringing together the entire continent under the umbrella of one sovereign ruler. And this, is all, this has always been the problem. I mean, you go all the way back to the 19th century when the first sort of really serious projects for and at various levels and by various people, to construct a, uh, a unified Europe, which then used the phrase "United States of Europe," which was also used, I should say, um, in 1951 and in, in the original um, charter for the Coal, community, coal and Steel Community. Um, this idea of the United States being some, the United States of America of course, being some kind of model, and the idea then was. We have a super state, in a sense, Um, and the super state will, of course, be run, generally speaking, by whoever it is writing the project. In the case of Victor Hugo, for instance, in the mid-19th century, it was, of course, France, that you would have a super state and the super state would have its capital in Paris, etc., etc. And that is precisely what the European Union has tried to avoid and precisely what these projects of unification have tried to avoid. So the idea of Charlemagne as a model is problematical. He is, he is a, you know, a great um, figure in European history because, of course, he brings together these scattered monarchies um, across what is now mostly Central Europe, of course, not the, not the whole world, uh, and France, and, 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 and establishes a sort of union between them after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. So it, it creates a kind of unification, a kind of principle of unification, which is why you adopted uh, Charlemagne as a patron, that we have a Charlemagne Prize, and so on and so forth. But I think if you look deeply what, what, what Charlemagne was, was trying to do and what in a sense the Holy Roman Empire ended up as being was much more of a sort of unified state albeit in the case of the, the of course the, they didn't actually succeed in achieving that but that was always the objective and I think as far as the EU is concerned that's never really been rather well, more than the reverse of that it's been to avoid that objective we don't want a super state that is what is not intended to be
0: Why do you say that Kant quote left his mark on almost all thinking about the possibility of a future world order unquote
1: well because Kant's perpetual peace um, was well first of all it was extremely widely read at a crucial stage it was taken out by the French revolution as it translated into French um, actually offered Frank, Frank, Kant was then pretty old and actually suffering from Alzheimer's as far as we now know um, a position as, a, as to write a constitution for the new French Republic so there was a, already a sort of political background to it and I think. but I think the reason why is it's, it's been taken up and it's constantly taken up, it's constantly referred to as the last, last instance probably Gorbachev reference during the acceptance of his Nobel Peace Prize speech um, is that um, Kant had seen what few others had seen, he isn't the first person, no one ever is the first person, or anything, but had seen that in order to bring together a collection of states, and don't forget Kant was talking about the whole world and not about Europe, so this is a different sort of project in a sense, but he had seen that in order to bring together a collection of states, you, those states had to have a certain um, juridical order in common. They had to have a political order of some sort in common, and that previously all attempts to unite Europe in all or, or projects to unite Europe. Most of them have been fantastical. And they go right the way back to the, uh, the latter part of the 16th century. And they'd all, of course, been attempts to bring warfare to an end. But these had all been... Based upon the assumption that you would get together very different sorts of communities, very different sorts of nations, of very different legal systems, and so on. I mean, there's a common legal system throughout Europe, but it's it's very, it's a very fine level, so to speak. But you bring republics, and you bring monarchies, and you bring dictatorships, and you bring baronies, and you bring all of these together, and somehow they'd all get on together, although they didn't share any common understanding, and common Set of views about what a civilization or what, what a civitas, what a city is, what a, what a nation is, what a what our state is, etc. Kant understood that that wasn't going to work, and that um, it, that the only way to make it work, to make this bring this body together, would be to ensure. That all of them subscribed to what he to one single political juridical political system, and that was what he called representative republic, and it was one which, of course, looks very like, although in many respects his conception is not like that, but it looks very like a modern form of democracy. So it suited, of course, later generations, post-revolution, post-French generations, very well, as to say, as part of, as it were, what has come to be called the democratic peace theory, that if you have, you know, a, a group of a, um, on, of, uh, of states, and all of them are in some sense representative to mona to democracies, or at least they all. Have- to, to a single set of a single body of law which is representative a political system is representative then they will not go to war with one another and they will be able to come to accord to one another and they will be able to create what Kant saw as being a universal he never talks about it quite as a federation because he uses very many terms in different places he does talk about a Volkabund which is a bond bond of peoples and, um, and a cosmopolis and, a, and, a and an, an alliance and so on but these various terms don't because there's nothing very precise about how those fit together will not matter. What matters is that all of these will share this common body of, of uh, I don't hesitate to use the word values because it's really a, a commitment to a system of law, it's a commitment to a system of rule it goes beyond the the simple sharing of of, of, of sort of individual values but this will this will allow states to come together in such a way that they will form a union between themselves and gradually that union in his view he doesn't actually explicitly ever say that it's going to start in Europe, but one assumes that that's what he had in mind. Well, of course, he refers to France as in one place as being the kind of model that that, that, that union will then create uh, a broader union in which eventually all states will uh, come to um, subscribe to. And I think that, that inspiration, that vision reduced. To its simple core, because what Kant has to say is a lot more complicated than that, and um, and a lot more uh, uh, metaphysical than that. But w- it, what it comes down to is that that core is very easily reproducible by people who were looking at, say, the, the foundation of the League of Nations in 1919, and again and the Union Nation, the, sorry, the, the the United Nations after 1945, as being kind of model. Not that the United Nations follows Kant's. Proposed in any way whatsoever, but nevertheless, the, that basic idea that that's, there is going to be a common core of of, of legal obligations in the United Nations case—it's really those called the core of legal obligations that are set out in the Charter of Human Rights in, of 1948—that's going to hold these peoples together. Of course, with the United Nations, you have very different sorts of government trying to get along together, and it doesn't work very well as Kant assumed it wouldn't. But that's the that's that is basically the reason and why, that's the inspiration, and it goes on in a sense being the inspiration because were, the other thing is you could say there were, there were a number of peace treaties uh, sorry not peace treaties, uh, peace treaties around, but a number of peace projects uh, which um, um, Kant was very well aware of as I said it goes all the way back to uh, uh, to the 16th century and the most important of course was the one drawn up by supposedly written by Henry IV of France in 1600 um, and these were all um, these were all inspirations in some sense for what Kant was doing. But what you get with Kant is something quite different. You get a real proposal written as a peace treaty which looks as though it might work. Um, I mean, okay, it's going to work on the very long time. As he says, this is a project for future time. He even says at one point, it's never going to happen at all. But if we can imagine it, then we can get something like it, um, whereas all the other ones were just um, – were just chimeras one person said you know and um, kant himself uh just likened these to um, a house, on so perfectly constructed that when a bird sat on it, it fell to pieces. So you know that, that you have to have something that's much more robust than any of that went preceded it. And that was um, so in the, the context of that literature. If you're looking for inspiration, within it, if you're you're a, a, um, a um, politician, a statesman, um, you're looking for inspiration with that. And indeed, indeed, then that is the that is the that is the text you're likely to go to.
0: Why was Bonaparte an important figure in your book?
1: Well, I think for a number of reasons. One, because uh, the... Well, th- let me say th- three basic reasons. One, because he's been represented as standing for a kind of um, a form of French imperialism, which, which which goes under the name of Bonapartism, which is said by many to still exist today, although in a much more muted form. Um, Two... Th- uh, which I don't believe from it, but that's uh, that, that certainly those people who are hostile to the European Union like to see it as a sort of Bonapartist project. You know, having failed to conquer Europe by arms, the French have now conquered Europe by forms of diplomacy and, and treaty building. Um, that um, the the other the other aspect of it is that he is um, one of the first to. Uh, begin to make claims about u- unifying Europe. Now, you, you don't have to believe those claims. I mean, the man was a, an opportunist of the First Order. So, um, and a lot of the stuff that he says, as I say in the first chapter of the book, about unify- unifying Europe um, goes is in fact said when he's sitting in exile on this island in the Atlantic and so hasn't got much else to do. And he's he's sitting there trying, with this man who who's his manuensis, trying to create an image for him, very self-consciously, trying to create an image for himself for past generations. I mean, one of the interesting things about Napoleon, Napoleon wrote a great deal, and he's a highly literate uh, man. And he's, from the very beginning, he's interested in two Basic things one is expanding the glory of France um, and himself at the same time, and secondly to make sure that past generations understood what he intended to do, rather that the past generations understood what he wanted them to understand what he intended to do and so and one of the things that he claims and he 's one under- is precisely that he 's trying to unify what he called the great European family, but the vision was that this Europe had been united under, under the Greeks, it had been united under the Romans, it had been split apart by a whole series of warring and fording little kingdoms, and those little kingdoms had stayed in power in one sort or another as tyr- tyrannical rulers, until the 18th century, when the French Revolution had changed the political landscape completely, introduced a new form of government, that is to say democratic republicanism, um, of which he was now the representative. And that that was going to restore this sense of equilibrium and balance, which had been destru- wiped out uh, by the fall of the, by the Gothic invasion, in particular, the sack of, the, the of Rome. So that that image, that fantastical um, historical image was very crucial to him. And I think it's something that and it has been it has been revised. Subsequently, it's it's as I say in the book. It, I mean, just plain passing it, it plays a quite considerable role in contemporary French politics because a, that that's the sort of right wing view of Napoleon. The left wing view of Napoleon is more the one who's going sort to of disrupted um, any form of of possible concord within France itself. So uh, the figure the figure plays large. You can't think about European unification without them. the other. But the other most important thing I think is that that. The, the real attempt to do something more than just talk, um, and not that I'm against talking because I'm, that's what I'm interested in, but um, and writing, uh, but actually to create a project starts with the fall of Napoleon. So Napoleon, M- Malgrè Louis, brings into play something which. That's the third of the the reasons. And this third reason is that the fall of Napoleon brings into play two things. It brings into play, one, the recognition by those powers that managed to defeat him, that whatever happens afterwards, despite their attempts to turn back the clock, to go back to all the way back to before 1789 and create another Europe of, of consolidated monarchies, at war with one another, they recognize that isn't going to happen and that the monarchies that follow in the 19th century are going to have to be different. The ones that survive are going to have to be different, first of all. Then they're going to have to cooperate with each other to a much greater extent than they did in the past. So the consequence of the, of the getting together, the bringing together of these forces, which, uh, which of course, interestingly, include Russia for the very first time, which um, have been um, instrumental in bringing down Napoleon instrumental in creating a new European order, will now as it were, collaborate with one another. And so you have what starts, what is thereafter called the century of Vienna um, because, because of the Congress of Vienna and the great power, the concert of the great powers in there, which is seen by many, not by all by any means, but seen by many as a kind of European unification. You know, there are, there are various um, foresighted most of them are diplomats of one sort of another thinkers who think, okay, well this is this is the beginning of something. This is really the beginning of a unification. The 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 great powers are still independent great powers. They still the idea that you could bring France, Germany uh, of course, Germany doesn't exist yet, but you bring France and Germany and, uh, and, and, and Russia in particular together into some sort of union is, for, is, is outrageous, are completely impossible. But it's the beginning of the possibility you might think about at least a, 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 a treaty arrangement between these groups which will somehow bring an end to warfare, which of course within Europe, which is what's crucial, bring greater prosperity to Europe, and eventually create a system of alliances between Europeans which will bring into being if not a European Union, if not a single republic, but certainly as some kind of coalition of powers. And the century of Vienna is called, called that because, of course, the, the view, and it's not entirely true, as I say in the book, I and mean, the view is there's no war between 1815 and 1914. So it's a 100 years of perpetual peace created out of the ruins of the Napoleonic imperial project, created by this unification. Now, there are, in fact, lots of wars, of which Crimea, of course, is the most important, and not to mention of course the german german invasion of france and um and the creation of the german Second Reich, but um, there was, the, the wars were nothing like the same scale as the Napoleonic Wars. They were nothing like the same scale as the first years of war uh, in the 17th century. Um, and so it was, in one sense, it's legitimate um, to think about this as being a period of peace and, and relative prosperity. Of course, that all falls apart in, the 19, in, in, in with, with, the, with the Great War, and what comes after that is completely different, and what comes after that there's no trace of Napoleon at all. The other thing that Napoleon left behind um, which is crucial and survives to this day is um, the motivation because it wasn 't his construction fault, the motivation for nationalism I mean na- nationalism is what in a sense had led to napoleon 's destruction and um, most thinkers of the time recognized this that if it hadn 't been for Napoleon these nation states that were that came into being in the course of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century um, which fought for independence. Those states. I mean, it was, it was Napoleon's attempt to, as it were, sub- subject them. Poland, for instance, or Italy, rather than um, simply freedom as independent nations, that led to the creation of modern nationalism. The creation of modern nationalism obviously has many other reasons, many other motives behind it. But one of the things that made nationalism, as to say the ideology of nationalism possible, was paradoxically the resistance to Napoleon. So that is why I think that's the point where one starts. I don't want to suggest, as some um, as I say, some people on the French right have suggested that in fact, you know, the EU, uh, modern Europe is somehow a sort of legacy of Napoleon, creation of Napoleon. I don't think it's all, but I think the very, reverse, the very reverse is true. But Napoleon did, as it were, um, both set an possible agenda, which of course was never followed through, but also by creating these conditions um, by being defeated his very defeat by creating these conditions made it possible to think a hundred years later which is really when it all starts with the great war uh, which is the last great which is the second great conflict between the European powers although of course it's also a conflict worldwide as well um, of, a, um, of a possibility that really there might be something in the future that could be called a European Union
0: what is the difference in the book between primordial nationalism and civic nationalism?
1: Ah, well, uh, the the, uh, the difference I try to make here is that, that, that nationalism nationalism goes and this is, I should say first of all that the the, the, the the debate about this is ongoing and it's never likely to come to an end and it's it's very difficult to pin down anything very precise or come up with any very clear theories. But in short, nationalism began in the 19th century as a nationalism, not just not the nation, the nation's a much older construction. A lot of, I should say, this is a parenthesis, but a lot of the uh, theorists of nationalism take um, start, as it were, in the 14th, 15th, 12th century, or, um, as though nation and nationalism were one and on the same thing. They're not. And I think that when we talk about the ideal ideologies of nationalism, we understand today by that we recognise the day by that. We don't really go much back before this period of 1815, this period of the collapse of the Napoleonic Empire. That is not to say for a minute that the great powers of Europe, the great nations of Europe, the great nations of the world, for that matter, um, don't have a very strong sense of themselves as nations long before that. They do, but nationalism quite that. Nationalism is a drive that has that says. Essentially, that there is one space, one people, one religion, one language, one law, um, and um, and that belongs to this particular plot of land. It's commensurate with this particular plot of land. If you look at the nationalisms of, of the past, they combine certain bits and pieces of that. But, um, for instance, the question of being of territories and borders doesn't really enter into it. It's really, that's what begins in the, in, in the early part of the 19th century. So, and that nationalism. It's, as it's pushed, pushed forward, and the two figures i drawn on in the book are, in a sense, the major ones are Giuseppe Mazzini, who's the Italian architect of Italian independence, and though not a great theorist in his own right, because he never wrote a substantial major book, he wrote endless pamphlets, was looked upon by contemporary Europeans as one of the great thinkers of the age, particularly on this matter. Um, and... Um, and and uh, Johann Gottfried heather, who was a german um writing really in the aftermath of kant not not an long before Napoleon of course in his case but um they set set up this idea of and, and how does nationalism is, is far more primordial, as we would put it. i mean, much more concerned with the idea of a folk, of a people, of a of a space and so on. But the important thing about both of these forms of thinking about the nation and that, what nationalism is, is that they're not national, naturally antagonistic to other nations. They fit quite nicely into actually into, into, with, with Kant's own project because Kant's project was to bring together all the nations of the world. But bring them together as nations, he was a great anti—at that stage in his life, Kant was a great anti-imperialist, and anything that looked like an amalgamation of nations to him looked like an empire, and that, as he said, was the graveyard of freedom. So to have a a, a confederation, you had to make sure that each or other to have a grouping of states together, a cosmopolitan order of states, those states all had to be— independent states, quay states. They all had to have an independence together. What they had to do was to share a basic set of common beliefs and common interests. So that was the, that was the notion. Now, what happens to this, of course, is that and the, the story is, and, and the very way they're taking this, that this gets taken up, particularly in, in 19th century Germany, and particularly by he- starting with Hegel, who have transforms and the greatest he is the greatest theorist of the state that's ever lived i mean he thinks of the state as something quite different but as a sort of as, as, a, as a as a transformation of the human spirit as something that exists as a way of making humans human and that so it transcends these other forms of life and he puts together this idea of the nation with the which is with the state which is the, the construction of power, the body of power that goes with the nation and creates what we think of as the nation state. Now, that nation state conceived by him and then by in vulgarized forms by a lot of his successors, and they are more influential than he is himself, because if you read him carefully, he see he's not saying a lot of the things that they claim he's saying um, – they believe that this is, uh, that there is these sort of primordial units, uh, human units, which are called um, nation states. These nation states um, can only exist in conflict with one another. That's part of their, their needs, the question of the other, which has become so dominant. In- rather sort of vulgar political thinking that you need another in order to be someone. So you have to have an opponent, you have to have an enemy. Um, this is taken up, of course, by Karl Schmitt during the third Reich in Nazi Germany. So you then have this idea that, that we are the single primordial nation all other nations in some sense are our enemies and our opponents. And that's the much comes much closer to being what modern nationalism there is. There are a lot of um Um, a lot of opponents to this view, I should say. I mean, I'm giving you a very, very simple view of it. But the kind of nationalism that has driven The populist parties of the right and of the left, I should say, in Europe today, the kind of nationalism which has driven Brexit, uh, the kind of nationalism which is opposed to this larger unification of peoples, be it on a European level or a global level. That nationalism, I think, derives from this late 19th century German version, is, is much bolderized and, of course, greatly strengthened. Uh, By National Socialism and Fascism in the 1920s and 30s, and of course, as a consequence of that, is now become uh, you know unacceptable. So um, unacceptable for all but extremists on the far right and the far left. So that is the distinction. I think you could say we could have a nationalism which says, yes, we have to respect people's national boundaries. We have to respect their national interests. You know, we have to think about how small a unit is the state going to be. Um, we have to think people have things in common and so we can do all of that um, while at the same time belonging to some greater order to which we um, Uh, are beholden and I should say and this this is your next question that um, this is also very closely linked to the question of sovereignty and that's the crucial issue that becomes the crucial political issue uh, with modern nationalism Uh,
0: for the reasons you just uh, described is that why you refer to Mazzini as the quote the single founding father of the EU unquote
1: (laughs) I think I say that I haven't got the text because he could be so considered. yes um, that uh, I mean he didn't he, he has he has a, talks about the, But he has a he has a text which talks about the United States of Europe um, and there's one way you could say that there, but again this is not is not his phrase uh, that goes back to the 18th century um, but um, I think that the kind of vision that Mazzini has and the vision that Mazzini is recognized as having by those who read him at the time, because as I say, he was a very widely read, very, very influential person, um, would be considered to be the closest thing that one can think about. It's founding uh, father, not, of course, in the American sense, of, or, or indeed the European sense of the term, but the inspiration behind uh, what was going to be. It's also, of course, you know, it wasn't just, as I say, it's not just for Europe. It's, it's a broader sense um, the, um, you know, there's a broader sense of the of the of the, uh, of the of 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 his vision which goes beyond Europe. But he's primarily concerned, of course, since he's primarily concerned with Italy above all, with with Europe. But there the, are the, the many passages where he talks about you know, the world. We think about the whole of the global. Union. Eventually, the globe will be organised along some sort of similar lines. But yes, that's uh, that's if you're looking for a single inspirational figure or what should be the inspiration behind it, then that's the one you might choose.
0: How did the concept of the extra-European empires impact on the European idea before 1914?
1: Ah, well, that is a major question, because that is, uh, as I was trying to say earlier, in a sense, um, one of the things that transformed the um, uh, whole way of thinking about um, Europe. Because, first of all, the first thing is to bear in mind that, as I say in I think it's chapter Four that the um what happens after eighteen fifteen is uh, and uh that the um, Europeans cease to fight each other and they start fighting other people overseas. So they, they, the, the energy, so to speak, that went into, into into Nissan warfare within Europe now goes into creating external empires. Now, that, it's not that those empires didn't exist before, clearly, so it would be absurd if they start in the 6th, 15th century, but the kind of empires that are created in the 19th century, which are nationalist empires, right? they're born in particular nation states, and they're competitive with one another in the way that not to say the Portuguese and the Spanish and the French weren't competitive, they were. But they're not competitive to anything like the degree they become competitive in the 19th century. So you have this sense in which the, the state is being created, a new modern nation state is slowly being created as a consequence of its imperial overseas reach. But having an empire in the 19th century becomes... Uh, a symbol of great power. if you don't have an empire, you're nobody. Um, There's a phrase by, um, um, Edward Curzon, you know, Lord Curzon, Viceroy of India, who says at one point, you know, if we if we give up India, we drop immediately to the third rate. This and and Tocqueville writing about uh, Algeria um, and on the whole, Tocqueville was a hostile to sort of overseas empire, but talking about the need to hang on to Algeria and indeed to transform Algeria into what he calls a part of France on the far side of the Mediterranean, says precisely that. You know, France has now come back into the lead so to speak, the family of nations after the Napoleonic Wars has been re-established as a central part of Europe great power it will not succeed in maintaining that position unless it has an overseas possession and this Algeria is the most important one we have and you know you can see this, is this, this perception goes right the way down to the 1960s I and mean, it's still being aired in the war fought for liberation of, um, of Algeria in the 1960s so I think that the, the, that, that has a great impact on it um, of course, what the, um, the other side of it, the other side of the story is that the, the, the Great War is a war between empires. So it's not just wars within Europe, it takes place outside of Europe, Europe as well. And of course, it brings in former European colonies, such a, most importantly, the United States into play. So one of the things that happens after this Great War is, a, of course, a gradual scaling back. I mean, mean the creation of, a, of United Nations mandates and so on, the destruction of the three of the great, greatest empires that existed at the time, and the the rolling back of the imperial project, so that when 1940, so that during the course of that period, but in the interwar years, there is a lot of talk and most of it's just talk, it's true, but, I mean, a lot of it goes on in very high places, or, first of all, of course, the League of Nations, which is going to be a league, that's going to be a league of leagues, So it's not just going to be, the idea was that there would be a league of all the nations of the world, but it was made up of a league of nations. One of those leagues, of course, would be the European European League. So it was already beginning to, they were already beginning to think on a sort of global political scale about bringing these various nations uh, together. Then, um, of course, you have, um, all of that you know, gets, and then you have lots of people thinking about p- possibilities of world government. Um, this is a great period of um, reflection, and, and of course, the rise of federalism. Federalism as a project becomes uh, very important. Um, in, in, in this period, and interestingly, not not just within Europe, but also outside Europe and, and a lot of the places which become subsequently decolonized, most crucially, India, uh, begin to toy with the idea, which is then overruled in the end of creating a new independent India as a federation and not as a nation state. The nation state is what is created. The problems in the the nineteenth century has created the empire. It has created the Great War, and therefore we need to find an alternative form of political arrangement. And the most obvious one is a federation. So, and this, in a sense, is what's replayed really out again in 1945. So you have the the, the empires begin to begin to dissolve, and um, after. Of course, the Second World War. All of those empires, with the exception of the British, disappear completely. So completely, almost completely. The French still hang on to bits and pieces here until the 1960s. Algeria was crucial, as we know. But as far as it being they being imperial powers and conceiving themselves as imperial powers, that doesn't that that's gone. And at that stage, it becomes much much easier, of course, for these various nations to come to some agreement among themselves about some kind of union between themselves because so long as they're competing imperial nations which they are throughout the 19th century they share a lot in common they speak a common language they try to establish a universal uh, world order in which they're all going to participate the creation of international law is part of part of that story which i also try to tell in the book Um, but they still remain very separate and possibly antagonistic states in certain other way. They're not fighting themselves any longer, but there's always the possibility that some kind of war might break out um, between them, as breaks out, of course, in the Crimea, um, in, um, in overseas. So when that ceases to be possible, there is no longer that sort of competition any longer. And so the, it, it becomes possible to think of... Um, uh, Developing the kind of this kind of sense of Europeanness which has been developing in the nineteenth century, although it hasn't had a political form of any shape, giving that some sort of political form now that the um, the empires themselves are de facto no more and this of course is other things that makes Britain so difficult because Britain is the only one it's the only only one of the European powers uh, Russia of course the only one of the European powers to have, to have been a victor um, it couldn't have done it on its own of course although it tries to present that it could have done but um, it couldn't have done it on its own but it, did, it was a victor and none of the other European powers were so that made, made a huge difference in self-representation and of course it still had a very, a very considerable empire and was still trying to hold on to it until the late 40s, early 50s um, at some who wanted to try and get it back, even in the late 60s. And so I think the the the, the idea, and it was always said, all of those debates that went on in the, in the 40s about w- what Europe's role would be with regard to the new Europe, always circled around this idea: what are we going to do about the empire? And still it's today, and Brexit was a was a partly about that. You know, I mean, if you it, what, what are we going to do about Brexit? Right, we're going to we're going to form we're going to form a state which is going to be dependent on our former colonists, basically, starting with the United States. We're going to be dependent; they're not dependent. on we're dependent on them, but it's going to be United States, Australia, and New Zealand. And um, so that constant harping back, both politically and economically, to, to an imperial order made it very difficult after 48, 45, 46, uh, when the projects for the European Union began to consolidate for the British actually to take any part. They could quite happy to take part in a, in a customs union. Uh, and make quite substantial concessions of customs union. But anything that looked as it might be more far-reaching than that, you know, it's like it, picking in the book, people tend to think the beginnings, that's all the European Union was. It wasn't. If you look at the treaties of 1951, the founding treaty in a sense, which founds the iron, steel, and coal community? That is still very much committed to a larger picture, and the larger picture is indeed, if not a federal state, at least some kind of holistic European Union in the future, which Britain has never really been able to um, pay pay lip more than lip service to. It was paid lip service, and after the um, after the referendum, and uh, you know there was these great ceremonies in London and so on, I remember them clearly um, you know, triumph, the triumph of Europe everyone thought this was the beginning of a new world and so on and so forth, but it was quite clear it wasn't and um, it only required something small to start going wrong when the whole thing collapsed so I think that, that, that goes back to the, that's one of the roles European, the empires plays in this whole stor- sad story
0: How does the Briand plan fit into your narrative and why did it fail
1: uh, well, I don't know. I mean, various reasons it failed. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't systematic enough, and it didn't go far enough. I think that's the problem. Um also in a way you could say it it, it, it it was there before its time um at that time what people were thinking of first of all, most of the were thinking in global terms and not in terms of european terms so that you, and the briand plan is, is 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 part of it, it's a, it's in a sense a, a mishmash of the two and so you it, it's the Europe is still as i said going to be part of a, of of a union within unions of a league within leagues it's not going to be something separate and by itself Um, which is um, you know fine I mean which is is wholly admirable in the sense really indeed what it is Um, it has to be thought of in those terms but the project after 1919 was to bring world peace to to the world and not just to Europe and I think that that was the um, that was one of the difficulties with that project that that, that the whole thing was never clearly enough thought through the other aspect of it of course is that given the situation after the end of of the First World War, Um, it was very unlikely that that sort of um, cohesion could be brought together, particularly since the United States, which had been so much of an instrumental part in um, in creating the League in the first place, would have no part of it. So if you were going to have a world order, with one one major power, and one major power which was not only major in terms of its military might, its economic powers, and so on, but also was deemed to be, in some sense, intellectually and ideologically, uh, at the center of
0: what this union was supposed
1: to be, wasn't part of it, then um, it really had no chance of going anywhere.
0: Carl Schmidt occupies a prominent place in your story. Why so? And would it be true to say that, oddly enough, he has seems to become more have become more influential post 1945 rather than pre 1945.
1: So I didn't catch the beginning of that. What becomes more influential? Uh,
0: Carl Schmidt seems to have become more influential, intellectually speaking, post 1945 rather than pre 1945.
1: Well, yes, I think so. But I mean, Carl Schmidt is, is a strange character because um, he, the um, the. Uh, he's been—he t- was, as you know, the crown jurist of the Third Reich. I mean, he had this—he has this perception of sovereignty and some which fitted very nicely with what Hitler wanted to understand. Although he didn't get on very well with Hitler at all. But um, the, the 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 thing about Kautschmidt that has been taken up by a lot of people on the left and on the right and on the left because it fits in his conception, fits in the, the, the sense of the of the absolute control the state has over its resources. Um, so that the, the sovereign, as he, as, as Carl Schmidt famously says, is he who makes the exception, the rule, the laws of rule exist for everyone except when there's an exception, and the sovereign is a person who decides there's an exception. So, there's a, there has to be a, um, a sovereign body which regulates life on a day-to-day basis, but that state has always to be prepared to, to go against the grain, to break the laws, to break the rules if necessary. And there has to be an absolute sort of Hobbesian central power to it. Um, so that appealed to both left and right, and it's been something, it's an anti-liberal view. And a lot of the things in a lot of influence and in, that's uh, going around in universities, particularly in the United States and so on and so on is sort of anti-liberalism. And Carl Schmidt is the anti liberalism anti-liberal par excellence. that um, he happens to be talking from the pro- ex- position or was talking rather when he wrote these things from the position of the extreme right doesn't seem to worry the extreme left at all. But um, of course the views come out looking very much. Someone like George Orgamban for instance who's very popular uh, takes most of what he says as far as I can is largely derived from Schmidt. Takes ex- this extreme view. You no, know? um, so that the that 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 at the sort of intellectual, sort of academic level, if you like, myself. The other aspect is I think that, um, which I wanted to stress in. In, uh, in the book, rather more was that he was, after all, first and foremost a jurist. And he was very much, he wrote, you know, his most influential books were written on the conception of international law. And that, it's that aspect of how he sees the interrelationship between states, which is very different from this kind of manichaeal figure, maniacal figure that he represents with regard to the control within individual states. Of course, the individual states have to have absolute sovereign authority. He never questions that point. But there is, The, 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 what he sees as the Gross Ram, the, the great. Um, areas, the possibility of having a, something that lies between a federation on the one hand and um, a state on the other, um, and this was something that was being proposed. Before, you know, independently, it was taken out It's not actually his idea. i put it this way: it's, not, it's, its first formulation isn't his first formulation. It already existed in Germany in the 1920s, but the, the, he takes this idea up that you can have a kind of group of states that share a common interest uh, in, in which, as he said, there is a, there is a dominant political principle. And he doesn't say it has to be a particularly. And, and of course, in that, when the Nazis take this up, that the dominant political principle becomes National Socialism. But it doesn't have to be National Socialism. It can mean, be democracy. It can be fascism. It can be communism. It can be anything. The point is, what holds it together is that. And his model Somewhat ironically, was the Monroe Doctrine. But he believed that the Monroe Doctrine was what the Americans were trying to get at. The Americans were trying to say, "Look, we we have a an area of control of of influence, which reads all the way from Canada to uh, Chile, um, because this is the the Western Hemisphere. We are the most powerful state in the Western Hemisphere. We don't govern these states. We don't tell them what to do, but we have a, a considerable area of interest over." Their actions and behaviors. We form leagues with them. We assist them in times of difficulty, and crucially, we make sure, in the case of the American case, and this of course is Alexander Hamilton's view as well. We keep the Europeans out. We don't want any 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 attempt at reconquering the Americas. The Americas are and um, he thought this was. Um, Schmidt thought this was a model that could be, become something in Eastern Europe, right? Not Western. He wasn't thinking of East Western Europe, nor, nor of course, was Hitler. This is something that could be, be applied to Eastern Europe. Um, so the Nazis, the Germans would have – they wouldn't have total sovereign imperial control over them. That wouldn't happen. Um, that's, of course, what eventually was attempted. But that, in the first instance, is not his vision. His vision was much more indirect, that they would be a sort of you know guiding power – um, and that, but, but it would be crucial, and this goes back again to Kant's view. It would be crucial that all of these states shared what Schmidt called the same common um, political principle. Um, and of course, in the American case, the idea was that was going to be democracy, and in the German case, it would have been national socialism, and the Russian case, which is not unlike what I mean. Putin doesn't talk in these terms because he doesn't know these figures, and he's not alluding to this history. But a lot of what he's saying sounds quite similar to that. And uh, again, there it's some kind of odd form of neo-Christianism that's coming out of the revival of the Orthodox Church and the reconstruction of the, uh, uh, of the old um, Tsarist Empire. But that sort, of, that sort of image, I think, is what makes, how um, um, vague that it might sound, um, Schmidt, quite interesting.
0: Why did your self evidently correct and true statement that Islam is not a European religion come in for criticism?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I don't think that it was said in the context of that being a uh, – I don't think it, – it's not a formative – I mean, there are Muslims in, in Europe. But let me get straight, one thing straight about that. Europe has a strong Christian antecedents to it. But – Europe, the European Union is not a Christian ent- entity, right? It is a wholly secular body of states altogether. It shares, because the European culture is steeped in Christianity, a number of things in common with Christianity. That's right. It also diverges very markedly uh, from Christianity, both in the past and today, the most obvious being the question of the status of women, which is crucial to the EU, crucial to the way that the European Union sees itself, and is still, of course, you know, um, um betrayed by most of the churches, not all of them, but certainly by the Catholic Church. So there's nothing there's nothing Christian about it. It's I made try to make a point in that thing that one shouldn't overlook uh the Christian formation of it, the ways in which this went into the building of it. But it has been in the process uh entirely and utterly secularized. So that um in, and because a lot of the the, the The Christian bits that it chose to emphasise were already secularised in the in the the 18th century, Um, so that Islam, the claim that was being made there was that Islam was was in some way a formative religion. This is the the objection to that particular comment that was made in the creation of in the sense that it had existed for many years in the south of Europe, and I think that. That is quite wrong. I mean, that, that you can, that, you know, that there are, there are certain ways in which you can accommodate yourself to Islam. Okay. But there is, there are. But it, but it's not easy, and it's not easy because Islam does not. If you're, if you're, if you're a true Muslim, you do, do not accept the distinction between the between the the secular powers, church and state, so to speak, the secular powers and religion, the religious powers, and you do not accept certain basic things that we would consider to be, in the Europeans consider to be, basic human rights. One of them, of course, is the total independence of women. So. That is what makes it impossible to think of it as a European religion, right? it played a part in the history of Europe in the in the fourteenth fifteenth century true no one would never deny that, and that was crucial in that sense but it isn't hasn 't been any more than Judaism has been, although Judaism in a sense is it, you know, it, because Judaism is the re, the root of both Christianity and Muslim Islam, it has obviously has had an indirect role. But you know, I don't think that Judaism, if you wanted to set up a strictly Orthodox community in in Europe, that you would be actually in a way some sense fulfilling a, a European perspective of how life should be lived. Um, so that that was the that was the point of that comment. Um, that one of the problems with 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 uh, bringing on board Turkey, for instance, was that in the 19 uh, uh, when this the whole project for include expanding Europe to possibly to include um, uh, Turkey in the 1990s started before. Um, the takeover as it were by these uh, parties of the uh, Muslim right um, before that happened then um you know this was something that a lot of people were very much in favor of and I, as I said in that book you know Sarkozy was against it because he saw it as being he was the one who saw that that this is a Christian state uh, europe was christian shouldn't be allowed in and that was taken by some people to believe i wasn't endorsing Sharkozy, as isn't that metaphor at all and if you read if you read the worlds at war there's a long passage there saying why, which was written, of course, in, in, in 2005, but why it was essential that Turkey should be part of the European Union. Um, but that was the other Turkey. That was the Turkey of Atatürk, right? Um, and the Turkey that had come out of the First World War and had been there during the Second World War. So that is the Turkish People's Republic. And that that is something quite different from the kind of Turkey that is emerging today. the So I think that I would say, no, it is not a European religion because it doesn't bear those fundamental traits, which is essentially the, the set of you know, values that... Um, enshrined in a sense in the Charter of, of Human Rights, and also this crucial distinction that the, the, the laws that govern the state are the laws made by man, for man, and no beliefs, false, that, in my view all of just beliefs are false, but no beliefs that have any bearing on the, in the subject that do not come from a universal human consensus are to be accepted.
0: Why for you was Brexit an event foreseen?
1: Sorry, I didn't catch me, the line goes all fuzzy. Every time.
0: Can you repeat that? Why for you was Brexit an event foreseen?
1: Oh, because if you go back, if you read the, in, the, in the book, I mean, if you go back to the very beginning of 1945, I mean, you can see there's already a, um, uh, a hostility towards this, the idea of of, of being part of Europe, um, but then, as I said, there's this you could look at the history of it. That, in a way, Churchill's famous speech when he talks about a you know, European um, United States of Europe, which is, um, going to be, is going to exclude Britain, that Britain. I mean, Churchill had this, this vision of, of Britain being part of a, a world in which there would be the United States, there would be the Britain and the British Empire, cause he had no vision of the British Empire collapsing, which would be work hand in hand, and they would work hand in hand with the European Union, and then there would be the Soviet Union be the, the 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 other on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and that's how the world would be organised, and Britain would play a crucial role because Britain would be a mediator between this new European power, which would be the EU, and on the one hand and and um, and the United States on the other. but um, that never came about because Britain's power you know diminished its astonishing speed after the end of the second World war, and um, as you, what you know I mean the whole, geopolitics changed completely during the Cold War. but that was his object. and I think a lot of people within Britain, the British um, sort of directive uh, held to that idea that they were all in favour of the European Union as long as it involved them. Then later on, you get a more, you know, more, as it were, amenable view to having, being part of a customs union. But the brief period um, under Edward Heath when you know Britain actually went into and accepted them uh, and became fully fledged part of what would eventually become the European Community um, was, you know, again uh, very short lived, and in, in Britain has never. There's all sorts of levels in which it has never ever um, shown uh, really great interest in what's going on um, and uh, what's what Europe doesn't in, in, in what's happening in I, mean, I know that the interest in what's happening in Europe in all European countries is low compared to what's happening locally. Just as you know, national elections. Arouse much less interest than local elections and so on. But nevertheless, there is a commitment to Europe, a visual uh, and commitment to Europe goes all the way to teaching people in the schools what this is, which doesn't happen in Britain at all, or didn't happen. So I think that when when it when this happened, this event happened, which was almost you know frivolous in the way it was conducted, it was clear that um, this is something which a lot of people. If they had still been alive, who were negotiating in 1945, 46, 47, would have said, "I told you so." You know, this is if you go into, if you do this, you're going against the country's history. You're going against its sense of itself. You're going against its needs and everything. We don't want to be part of Europe. We don't want to be part of the European Union, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And therefore, we. Uh, um, in that sense, it was a death foretold. Yes, I mean, certainly, I think it was. I mean, that was going to be the consequence. I didn't, that doesn't mean that I thought it would happen. Um, and, um, I, like many people, I, at the time, didn't believe that this was going to be, uh, sufficiently, it was sufficiently coherent that there were enough, I'll put it this way, there were enough people who knew what the consequences were likely to be. Um, who would vote yes stay. And the people who were voting against were so incoherent and so ignorant of what, um, for the most part, obviously not all of them, but for the most part were so ignorant of what they were voting for that they probably wouldn't bother to vote. So you'd have an extraordinarily low turnout and a very narrow remain margin. And then Cameron would have got essentially what he wanted and that would have been the end of the story. As it was, it tipped very slightly in the other direction. But I think it was foretold, as I say, because you, all sorts of levels, the commitment of Britain to the to the whole European project has been lukewarm, at least, to say the least.
0: Are you a Euro optimist or pessimist? No, I'm pretty much an
1: optimist. <laughs> I mean, you know, states come and go, wars come and go. No, I mean, nothing's perfect. Everything works out. You have to be prepared for what's. Uh, what we're getting, but I think it's survived for a very long period of time. It's brought in immeasurably uh, wealth to people who would not have otherwise had it. Um, it's still doing that. Uh, I think if you, you know, when Ukraine first wanted to join in 2014, that outbore, outpouring of um, enthusiasm, uh, which was, is partly responsible for what's happening now, very largely response to I mean, that outpouring of enthusiasm is some sense of how people from the outside who you know saw themselves as being part of this project looked upon it and you know nothing is perfect obviously it doesn't work all kinds of things need to be done as i say in the end of the whole, all kinds of changes need to be made if we're going to go under needs to be made a lot stronger than it is and it's not quite sure how you're going to make it stronger in such a way without changing its basic equilibrium um, without preserving the independence and without you know Bringing back some kind of backlash, a la Brexit, but that's not at all clear. How far, how, what, what the future is going to be, particularly as you rightly point out in the beginning, in the light of the uh, of the conflict in uh, in the Ukraine. But uh, I think so far it has uh, done extremely well, and it's it's also in ways that, you know, we, people don't really notice. Um, One thing that's been mentioned many times before, but the general public doesn't really passionately, the EU operates an extraordinary, powerful, systematic, and effective uh, system of regulations across the world. Because if, you know, you can't get away with uh, behaving badly in the EU if you're a major company, because you're, a lot of your business is going to be done there, and therefore, if you can't get away from that, then those regulations reluctantly are then taken up by other states. So quite by, you know, quite without any noise, without any, you know, without any force being exercised, these things that say no, you can't, you know, you think about the suits that have been bought against Google and Amazon and so on. You can't behave in this way. Um, so Themes as a source of regulations which simply don't exist in the rest of the world, and because it's they're universal regulations, those are they're transnational regulations, not just within one single state. Their effect is enormous. So I think there are all sorts of there are all sorts of that's just one of them. But there are all sorts of hidden ways in which this project. I think is not only uh, destined to go on growing because um, I suspect that the outcome of the, I may be talking through the top of my head here, but let me do so briefly since <laughs> yeah, I gather we're coming to the end. Um, the end of the UK- war in Ukraine will probably be the surrender of the Dol- Donbass region to Russia because it's predominantly Russian anyway. And the Russian have been, you know, using this system of voluntary or semi-voluntary migration uh, which the Turks used, the Ottomans used as well, and the Chinese use to secure frontier regions. They've been doing that since Peter the Great. Um, so it's predominantly a Russian region. That will become part of Russia. Um, what happens about a death? I don't know. That's, 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 a, that's a tricky question. But And then the rest of the union, Ukraine will then become, as it almost certainly, is waiting to happen, will become part of the EU, and um, which will extend its strength. And, uh, it obviously create enormous problems as bringing, bringing Romania and the places in the EU did create enormous problems of trying to, you know, accommodation to local customs, accommodation to local economic interests, et etc. et cetera. It's not an easy task going from being a sort of pre-Soviet the Soviet state into being a member of modern uh, European democratic Union but still it, it can be done it does happen if you look at what if you look at what are going back further to the 1990s you did look at the impact of the EU had on the democratization in, in, in Spain and Portugal in the 1990s it was massive so I think that those are examples of what what happens and as Eastern Europe has been less good an example than that and then what's happened recently in, in Hungary and, and Poland it may the the outcome of this may bring Poland and Hungary more into line the un, un, union needs strengthening in all sorts of ways and as I say the problem about it is how to do it without turning it into a super state but I think there's a there's a model there for the future and I think there's a model there for the rest of the world too I mean it's the first I think of Uh, I mean, I won't be alive to see it, obviously, but it's probably normal, anybody listening. But it's the first of a step towards, as it were, something that looks very much like what Kant had in mind at a general level, a unification, a unified world of unified states brought together into perhaps federations of federations, a world federation of federations, put it that way. Um, and, uh, And if that happens or anything like that happens, then the EU would have been the first step.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book what would it be
1: Probably that actually um but this isn't uh this is an ex- well this what I what I what I really say in the beginning this is a this is a project this is an ambition that has been going on for a long time. Uh, this is a dream, if you like, but it's a dream with a, with a possible reality. And I think that that if you look at it, if you look at the intellectual history, which is what this book is, a history of how people have thought about it, how, the aspirations they've had, the desires they've had, the ambitions they've put into it, the things they've tried to achieve through it. If you look at that, you will see that humankind is capable of organizing itself eventually into, or, into uh, unions of, as the Uh, The image on the cover jacket uh, is uh, is attempting to uh, uh, point to of of a union of peace and justice. One of those figures is peace and the other is justice. And that is what matters. And that, that the only way to achieve that is through some kind of larger, complex, detailed union around a set of common values, a common set of common interests, obviously a common values, a common legal system, and a a, a political order which is shared by all.
0: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you
1: very much for having me.